healthcare system is broken, but it doesn't have to be. This is Revenue Cycle Optimized by Infinix Healthcare. We discuss the latest challenges in the revenue cycle space and provide actionable tips on how to overcome them at your organization. Welcome everyone, thank you for joining us. We're happy to have you here with us today. Today we're going to talk about rural critical access hospitals because they are in precarious financial straits and some are even questioning their long-term survivability. And with us today is Todd Linden, a partner in Linden Consulting. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great to have you here with us today. Let me tell you, Todd's a very special guest, and we're really happy to have him here with us. So let us let me tell you a little bit about him and why we value his expertise so highly. He's a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives, and he retired after 24 years as president of Grinnell Regional Medical Center, where he was named CEO Emeritus. So right there, that's the credential that you want him. And Todd has seen everything, I'm sure. Grinnell Regional Medical Center was cited by the Washington Post for its optimal healing environment and by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for innovations in quality and patient safety. And both of those are very, very challenging to achieve in a hospital environment. And he has testified in the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, and special conferences with both President Clinton and Obama on healthcare and economic development issues. He's also an adjunct professor and executive in residence for the Health Management and Policy Department at the University of Iowa, as well as a regular faculty for the American College of Healthcare Executives. So, on the side, we need to talk about testifying before the House and the Senate. <laughs> That's another whole issue. Yeah, though they were that was a remarkable experience. I really enjoyed it, but it is a it is something in and of its own. I can only imagine. So today, I'm not sure a lot of people really understand that that rural critical access hospitals not only has the flow of the federal COVID funds stopped, but in some instances, the federal government has arrived on their doorstep and said, you need to start paying that back. So imagine if you combine that with the severe staffing shortages, the ongoing pressure to meet community needs, the disruptors coming at them from all sides, and there's a storm brewing. So first of all, give us a sense of who we're talking about. What are rural critical access hospitals? Give us a sense of their size. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so happy to happy to do that. And just to give a little more context as well. So since retiring the last four years or so, I've been doing consulting, working primarily with rural hospitals around the country, strategic planning, governance work. So spend a lot of time with lots of folks dealing with some of these challenges. And we talk about critical access hospitals. We're really talking about hospitals that are 25 beds or smaller. They have an average length of stay in their hospital of four days or less, and they're 25 miles or or more from the next closest hospital. So those are sort of the dynamics of what makes up a critical access hospital, which enjoys a special Medicare payment approach that, that theoretically pays cost. Um, now, the cost is as the government determines it. And so it isn't true cost, but in essence, a critical access hospital receives the cost plus a percent or two, depending on the given year for taking care of Medicare patients. And so that is different than other rural hospitals. So other hospitals, the hospital that I was privileged to serve for 24 years it was too big to be a critical access hospital. So it was a rural PPS hospital, but we had, you know, between 25 and 50 beds and didn't enjoy some of the same pricing advantages that critical access hospitals receive. 
So let's let's shrink this before we expand it. Give us the top four challenges that are threatening this category's survival. Yeah, well, it starts with workforce. Really, the top three are workforce, workforce, and workforce. And that rolls right into the the second major challenge, which is financial sustainability. The financial pressures that are happening because of the labor shortages and because of some of the other supply costs and, and dwindling reimbursements, finance is really number two. And then number three really is how to continue to meet community need. So community-based hospitals, critical access hospitals around the country obviously exist to meet the needs of their community. And that's ever-changing and constantly a challenge. And then I'd say probably the fourth biggest challenge is just the disruptors, right? There's so many folks out there that are looking at healthcare and looking for a piece of the pie. And in many cases, that is impacting directly on primary care providers, this size hospital that we're talking about. So those are really the four biggest challenges facing rural hospitals today. Great. So let's talk about staffing. We've, we've all been hearing about staffing shortages since COVID, but the difference between hospitals and other industries, obviously, is that you cannot deliver care without people at the bedside. You may be able to contract for housekeepers and nutritional services, but you have got to be able to have doctors and nurses. What is going on now and how are they meeting these challenges, which must be even tougher in a rural setting like that? Yeah, there's no no question. We're at unprecedented times in terms of the workforce shortages. And, and there's lots of different things in play here. I mean, part of it is just the, the sheer numbers. We're, we're looking at a shortage of primary care providers within the next decade of about 50,000 in rural America. Nurses is even worse. We're looking at about the need over just between now and 2026 of about 2 million more bedside nurses and the expected supply is somewhere around 500,000. So, you know, there's a 1.5 million delta there in terms of the the, the number. So part of it's just there aren't enough. Now that even gets exasperated. Last year, we turned away 80,000 qualified applicants from nursing school because we simply don't have the faculty or the training sites to teach them, to train them. And so, so we've got a huge supply issue, and yet we're not able to you know, be creating the kind of pipeline that we need. Now you exasperate that with just the significant impact that COVID had, especially around burnout, right? So just the demands of, of being a hospital employee, whether you're a provider, whether you're a nurse, for that matter, whether you're working in, in housekeeping or, or maintenance or the lab or radiology. So, so we've got these shortages, we've got burnout that's impacting. A recent survey showed 22% of current nurses are considering leaving the field this year. And it's a vicious cycle. Part of the reason why they cite looking at leaving is because there aren't enough staff. And so they're overburdened. Right now, we're seeing 57 assaults a day on nurses in this country in hospitals. There's an unprecedented level of violence against providers. And so all of these things just really exasperate the challenge of finding enough people to meet those needs. So in many cases, it, you know, hospitals turn to these staffing agencies, but that is incredibly expensive. So we've we've added billions and billions of new dollars going to, you know, these staffing agencies. And of course, the travelers are getting paid more, but there's a big delta between what the hospitals pay the staffing agencies and what the what the nurses actually see. So that's added to you know some of this financial challenge, not to mention the culture issues, right? You've got somebody that's been working at the hospital for years alongside somebody that doesn't even know where the Band-Aids are that's getting paid more than they are, right? And so the, the cultural impact that that has. 
So that's why the workforce issue is the is the number one issue plaguing hospitals is just having enough and trying to create an environment where people you know want to, want to be there. It's kind of hard to put a recruiting pamphlet out that says, oh, by the way, you might get slapped today or or screamed at and yelled at, let alone actually injured um, on the workplace and expect people to just come running. So that's that's a big challenge we're dealing with today. And working with nurses who have come from 10 states away who have never been in your community and don't understand the culture of the people coming in the door. Right? Absolutely. Right. Yep. It's very, very difficult. So financials, we could do 10 different sessions on financials, right? But we know it's a very complex situation. It involves federal money, reimbursement, patient volume, the expense of staffing we just talked about. Can you sketch a picture for us of what it looks like today on the ground at these hospitals? Yeah. So again, number one is the labor cost increases. So that's, although it's not percentage-wise the highest increase, it's still the largest part of hospital budgets. So it's it has the biggest impact. The largest increases come in on with drugs and pharmaceuticals. Those are spiking at unprecedented levels right now. So we got increased labor costs. We got in increased supply costs, all of that on a backdrop. So the inflationary costs for healthcare, much of which are out of the control of hospitals, what's not keeping pace is the reimbursements. So whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, large payers, typically for rural hospitals, disproportionately so, but then also the private payers. So, so hospitals are getting squeezed. More than half of all rural hospitals lose money from all sources of revenue right now. So they're, you know, they're living off of savings. They're living off of looking at ways to increase property taxes for those that are public or county hospitals. Uh, a study that just was published now two years ago looked at hospitals that lost money three years in a row from 2016, 2017, 2018 from all sources of revenue. So that would be considered at great financial risk. And there were 311 of those in our country. And although there was some COVID support that came from the federal government, really the lifeblood for most hospitals to keep them open during COVID, clearly those payments have gone away. And as you pointed out in the introduction, in some cases, some of those dollars are needing to be paid back. I'm familiar with one hospital, for example, I just spent some time with recently where they're being asked to pay a million dollars a month back uh, in terms of payment for some of the, the Medicare relief funding they got during COVID and that they don't have it. So unless there's some intervention, that hospital will definitely close. So the financial challenges are pretty daunting right now, and, and, and that's leading to sort of unprecedented levels of turnover and leadership, right? So, you know, when I was running a hospital, it was always hard. Pandemic made it exponentially more difficult, and now you've got this post-pandemic challenge of, of labor shortages and financials, and, you know, and people are, it's one thing to be responsible for things you have some control over, but when you suddenly start to have to be responsible for something you have no control over every day that gets very wearing and so we're seeing we're seeing turnover at the highest level in our history in rural hospitals for for CEOs so they average 10 years less than 2 years right now i'm working in states where they've seen a 50% turnover in their rural hospital CEOs within the last 3 years and so you think about continuity, you think about leadership, you think about being able to, you know, come up with the bandwidth to deal with some of these challenges. And that that just creates all the more challenge. And on top of all that, healthcare is not an industry that can turn itself on a dime. It's not like they can reinvent the model to say, 
oh, well, our, our delivery of healthcare today isn't working, so we're going to change how we're doing it. They're captive within this ironclad system that is contributing to the breaking of all of this. That's right. Right. And that really leads to that third, you know, sort of challenge, right, of meeting the needs of the community. The basic mission for why hospitals exist is to meet the healthcare needs of the communities. And often they're the economic engine for their communities as well, the top employer, the top two, right. third employer in their communities. And again, there's the needs have not gone away. If anything, they're increasing. And we start to look at things outside of traditional healthcare services. We know that the so-called social determinants of health have a huge impact on the overall health of a community or the health of an individual or a family. And these are these are things traditionally hospitals haven't looked at. You know, we focused on providing acute care services, long-term care services, providing maybe some fitness and wellness, some, some health improvement kinds of things. But when it comes to uh, access to shelter, to food, to socioeconomic status of the of our community. I mean, these are now starting to exasperate the health needs of 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 our communities, and so hospitals really are struggling in terms of finding the resources to have an impact if they want to continue to be sort of at the heart and soul of providing care, um, healthcare for their community. They now have to start thinking about, you know, the fact that a third of our kids in this country go to bed hungry at night and the impact that has on them socially, emotionally and physically. And and should a hospital really have a role to play in helping to make sure there's enough nutritious food for their communities? And where would the resources come for that? So I think that's, you know, another another challenge, another uh, part of the conundrum. And then you've got so this population we're talking about, the critical access hospital, the way the Medicare system is set up and, and, the, and the cost-based system that, that is used to reimburse them disincentivizes them from providing OB services and long-term care services. So the way the government keeps track of costs to be able to determine the payment level for a hospital, a critical access hospital, if, if they provide OB services, if they provide distinct part long-term care services, it's a huge financial detractor. And so, so many hospitals now are really being forced to eliminate those services. And that creates, you know, a, a, a rub with their communities. When, when, when communities see their hospital no longer delivering babies or sees them needing to close their long-term care facility, the care of the elderly in the community, you know, the community members are concerned about that. And obviously the boards of these hospitals and the hospital leaders are as well, but it's a matter of survivability. So, so that's really why I put that issue as kind of the third major issue facing rural hospitals these days. It's it's being able to to deal with meeting those community needs and and again being outside of your control, really being able to do that. And that becomes a seminal shift in what the missions, as you mentioned, what the mission of the hospital used to be. I mean, I don't know if the public knows it, but in the hospital, it's cradle to grave, right? We take care of you when you're born and we take care of you when you die. And that's how we become part of the fabric of the community. And that's just another way that it starts to break down when they can't, when they can't be that healthcare institution they rely on. Absolutely. Yep. Well yeah. stated. So disruptors, not that we haven't mentioned enough headaches for rural hospitals, but this is a big one for everyone. Yeah, so you know we spend a little over four trillion dollars in this country on care, on healthcare um, services, 
And, you know, folks like Amazon and Google and Apple and, and some of the folks um, that have more traditionally been in the pharmaceutical side, like Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, I mean, they're all looking at that $4 trillion and saying, gosh, how can we get a, a bigger piece of that? And so you look at Walgreens, for example, you know, purchasing huge provider groups, primary care groups, they recognize that if we specially move to more pharmaceutical online and, and getting pharmaceuticals through the mail, that eliminates people coming into their stores, walking from the front door to the back where the pharmacy is, and then buying all that $100, $200, $300 worth of stuff between the pharmacy and the cash register. So recognizing that one way to keep people coming to the stores is then to provide care. So we see, you know, CVS, Walgreens, uh, unprecedented levels of, of clinics being established in, in their facilities. Walmart, I just read an article a couple of weeks ago, um, will be the largest primary care provider in the country, right? So leveraging the way that they buy services, uh, buy, buy things and, and then sell them to all of us in the retail side, they're really looking, leveraging that. And although, you know, lots of critical access hospitals may be in communities that don't have Walmart, I have Walmarts in them. I certainly did in my community and there and and Walmart has a large rural footprint and so suddenly now you know when we think about the bread and butter for most rural hospitals of primary care services now you've got all these disruptors i mean amazon's a great example they've launched a new virtual care program if you're a prime member you get access to amazon clinic they've got a pharmaceutical line now so thinking about leveraging what they do buying a large supply and then turning around and having a distribution system to, to, to and think about Amazon and what it's done to retail and mom and pop stores, you know, in rural America. I, I fear the same kind of impact they could have on the healthcare side. So, I mean, those are just a couple of examples of kind of where these disruptors are, are starting to have some focus, but I do believe that it's, it's, it is probably looming as, as, as one of the biggest threats to the con the future survivability, I think, of lots of rural hospitals. Let's move in to talk about some potential solutions that you've seen. And I want to remind the people who are with us today that if you have a question, please just write it in the chat and we will answer them as we go along. So let's talk about solutions. I mean, I don't know where to start with all of these challenges, but it, does it make sense that we start with revenue cycle management, which is really the, the, the framework of it all? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, at the at the end of the day, you know, every penny is going to count for these hospitals. Whether it's on the saving side, a penny not spent is a you know is a is a revenue penny, or whether it's making sure you capture all of the the funds that are due you for providing the services. And so, I think more than ever before, having revenue cycle done well is is going to be is going to be extremely important. Now, that's kind of a blinding glimpse of the obvious, duh. But but the reality is in so many small community hospitals, there just isn't the bandwidth to keep up with all of the changes in coding, for example, or to make sure the charge master is up to date or to have the expertise to even do the kind of work to be sure that every part of the rev cycle is really humming. I mean, we put an enormous amount of the financial success of a rural hospital in the hands of a couple of people when it comes to coding, for example, right? And so uh, the quality of that coding 
could be the difference between a hospital closing or a hospital thriving. And, and, and so often, you know, whether they have access to the continuing education, to, to being able to do the audits, to be able to really keep up to date is, is one of the, one of the really big challenges. And that's why I think making sure you've got RevCycle support. And so some hospitals, you know, clearly when they get into these financial challenges, look to join systems, right, to be affiliated with larger hospitals. And, and with that may come some support for revenue cycle management. But what I've found often is a big city hospital, an urban center doesn't have the expertise for a critical access hospital. The payment system is so different and how many people you have and, and the work you have to do. And so, you know, that's one of the primary reasons as a consultant working with a lot of rural hospitals that have financial challenges is one of their top issues. We went looking for a solution. Um, there are plenty of RevCycle consultants out there, but one of the things that I found really sets NI2 apart and why we recommend NI2 to our clients is because not only do they have the expertise to do it well and just eat, sleep, live, rev cycle so that they're up on all of the changes all the time, but they also have come up with approaches that don't rely on a lot of bandwidth in the local community. So they've the technology that's been invented at NI2 to make a traditional sort of rev cycle consulting practice work puts a huge burden on the local hospital and they don't have the resources to take that on. And then even if they do, right, even if they spend all this time helping to provide information to the consultant to come up with the 10 or 12 or 15 recommendations, then there's nobody there to implement those recommendations. And that's what we found really made the difference with NI2 because they can actually bring that bandwidth and either, either just do it, provide the service, or begin to tr retrain the local team to get them in a position to be able to, at some point, you know, uh, take over doing those services. But I think that's that it, it just has to be part of the solution right now is having a rev cycle that is second to none because you just can't afford to leave even one single you know penny on the table. So one of the things that we hear in some of our conversations is the catch 22 of knowing that the hospital is suffering financially, knowing that there's a technical technological solution out there, but not having the time to figure out which one's which. Right. So if, if what do you tell your clients, look, th these are the three or four things that you absolutely have to find in a solution? Yeah, I think having the ability to provide the expertise nimbly and quickly and easily is critically important. But but also just, you know, sometimes the answer is, well, you, you don't know what you don't know. So you hire a, a RevCycle consultant to come in and, and, and to review things and say, here are the things you need to do. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, often you don't have the bandwidth to do it. Oh, and by the way, there's a fee for this assessment. So now I got to come up with a budget to actually pay, you know, for the assessment. And again, that's another reason why we we are um, so high on NI2 is because you don't have to budget for it. You know, the savings come from them adding to the financial improvement for the institution. And therefore, you know, the hospital and NI2 have the same financial incentive, which is to is to make the most improvement possible. The hospital does better and, and you know, and then that's how NI2 is is 
paid. And that's, again, I think that's that sets them apart from a lot of other RevCycle companies that we've seen, both when I was a practicing hospital CEO and, and struggled with this particular topic to, you know, all the clients we work with today. Which is why I, too, and Infinix work together so beautifully. Uh, we do have a question from someone. When you work with the leadership of the hospitals, do you think they believe that they can survive? And, and what do you see them doing? Like, what are the first steps they're doing to, to do so, to change the, the direction of things? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a couple components, right, to that question. So, so one of them is there is in rural America in general, and for lots of rural hospitals, this notion of being independent, like it's, we have to stay independent. We don't want to get swallowed up by a system. We don't want to become, you know, we don't, we don't want to lose control over local decision-making. So one of the things that we try to help people understand is, although independence may be the best way for you to continue to meet your community's needs, that shouldn't be the single focal point. The focal point is providing high quality, affordable care that's needed in your community. Whether you do that through an affiliation, through a consulting relationship, through you know staying independent, the focus should be on, on that. And I think sometimes, although the administrative teams understand that, it's another matter for the board members, the community members who make up the governance for these local hospitals, for them to really appreciate and understand that. And then, you know, kind of the other part of that question is, do I believe people have the ability to really understand and appreciate some of these struggles and challenges? And the answer there is yes, a resounding yes. I, I, I will bet on a rural hospital leadership team every day. They're resilient, they're creative, they're vested, they care. And it isn't that their urban counterparts don't, but you know, care is so personalized. When, when you run into a patient in the grocery store or a family member at the ball diamond or at church, it's, you know, um, the quality of the care and the access to the care become pretty personal. And, and so I, you know, I, I believe that most, you know, most folks are up for this, but it's but it's going to be it's going to be a huge huge ballot uh, challenge given all the things we've been talking about today on this call. At the end of the day, it begs the question, which uh, which I hate to think about, but if if rural hospitals start to close, then what? You drive an hour, an hour and a half with a broken leg. What what happens? Yeah, and I think we're already starting to see, especially in OB services, right, because of the unprecedented number of OB yeah. units, delivery, maternal uh, child programs closing, we're already starting to see having an impact, right, on infant mortality and some of the challenges that can come with a pregnancy. And so, so I... <sighs> So legislatively, right, we finally got some new legislation last year. It's just being implemented. We think there'll probably be a couple dozen hospitals that are going to enter into this new emergency hospital program that Medicare has created. So it's a it's an additional approach to paying hospitals. And so if a critical access hospital is willing to give up their inpatient care, and for many of these hospitals, they maybe take care of one or two inpatients a day. It's not the big part of their service, but if they give up their inpatient care program, they get a 5% increase in their Medicare outpatient payment, plus an annual sort of stipend, if you will. And the average is looking like it's going to be a little over $3 million. So that may be a, a at least a good start to a solution for some of these really smaller places, recognizing they're so dependent on Medicare payment and the amount of resources it takes to continue to provide inpatient care for maybe one or two 
you know, patients a day, maybe having a more robust outpatient reimbursement program, having an emergency department that people need access to and having a robust outpatient program, visiting doctors, you know, still plenty of primary care and getting paid a little bit more for that. That I think is at least the beginning. I think there's going to have to, you know, we need some brave souls to venture in and, and try this new program out. And like any new program, new legislation, there's going to be some things that are unintended consequences that have to be developed and thought about. But I, I think that's one thing for you know a lot of hospitals to look at. And I, you know, I, I, I think there's going to be closures without a doubt. We've seen an uptick going into COVID. It sort of slowed down because of the government financial support that came through COVID. Now we're starting to see again an uptick, and we're and we're seeing just the financial indicators of of crisis. So you know, likely um, we have a a big uptick. I mean, that's what created the critical access program in the first place, right? In the in the '90s was was we had this unprecedented number of rural hospitals closing, and and the government was like, oh my goodness, we got to do something, and so created the critical access hospital program. And and now I think we're you know we're seeing new cracks and the foundations that are probably going to lead to the need for more more robust. I mean. First and foremost, in my opinion, Medicare has to stop disincentivizing a critical access hospital from providing OB and long-term care services. Those those are important community needs and and can help to provide some of the overall financial base to continue to provide other services, right? And so so that's an example of just that's got to be fixed. You you can't you can't disincentivize core community needs like that. Now how long it'll take to have something like that happen, I don't know. There's certainly regulators in the Medicare program and you know at, at the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services that that don't like cost-based reimbursement, don't like the critical access hospital program. And so, you know, it's always going to be a struggle, but I think those are some things that, you know, could be considered. Well, it's another catch-22 because if you can't have your baby there, then that doesn't help you to bring your family there. And if you can't go there when your parent needs it, then you're going to start leaving the community and there you have a self-fulfilling prophecy. So. Yep. That's exactly right. Well, we've come to the end of our time already. It's just a fascinating conversation. We could probably, you know, ask you to be here 10 more times and not cover the entire topic. So I thank you so much for your time and and giving us some insight and some wisdom around this topic. My pleasure. It's a delight to work with you and and with Ron and everybody at NI2 and and, and your company. And and I I just I just appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of some of the struggles and challenges that uh, lots of our clients are dealing with. Great. Well, you're doing great work. Keep it up and save some of those people out there. Thanks, Deb. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to get notified when our next episode is online. For more information for how we can help you increase reimbursements at your company, check out our website at infinix.com. That's I-N-F-I-N-X dot com.